Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We are into the first round of basketball's playoffs, and it has been incredibly, incredibly enjoyable. Some series may be all but done, the <laughs> Toronto Raptors, and others are just getting more intense. Bet online is the place to stop for all of your bets, props, odds, wagers, gambles, plays, and any and everything gambling during the basketball playoffs. Use our promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up using the link in the description to this episode. Bet online, where the game starts. Good afternoon or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast Live. On the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is April 27th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in. However, and whenever you may be listening, it is the eve of the NFL Draft, and we have not one but two fantastic guests joining us here today on the Take It Easy podcast. We have our friend Razor Rosenthal joining us to talk about the NFL draft and just football in general. We have a really fun conversation around that and the Buffalo Bills and draft picks and all kinds of fun stuff. I really missed talking to Razor after college basketball and college football and the NFL season ended, so Razor and I are going to talk a little bit about the draft on this NFL Draft Eve. I promised you on yesterday's show, of which you can download, rate, review, and subscribe to on any Take It Easy podcast feed. I did say yesterday we do NFL Draft coverage, and we got that. We got Walter Mitchell with a mock draft coming out on the day of. We're going to talk to our friend Blake Jude in Vegas. All kinds of draft stuff throughout the week. So we're going to start that today with Razor. The first part of this podcast is going to be NBA-centric, and I'm sorry that it's so Brooklyn Nets-centric. We have our friend Adam Armbrecht from the Locked On Nets podcast joining us here today as well. Adam is awesome at this podcast content game, and you can check him out with links in the description of this episode. You heard Adam come on when we were talking about the preview to the Celtics and Nets series. Now that the Celtics and Nets series is unceremoniously ended, We're going to talk to Adam again, and I know we're doing three consecutive days of Nets content to kick off the podcast. I get it. I just think you can't get enough of the Brooklyn Nets at this point. It's such a fascinating story that we can eulogize them now. We'll focus on Boston later. I know Morgan is itching to get after me because she saw the podcast description for for Tuesday's show, and it had no mention of the Boston Celtics in it. 
Don't worry, Cam and Morgan and Juju, you'll get the chance to bask in the glory of your Boston Celtics during round two and all of the offseason and all into next season. There will be ample time to talk about your Boston Celtics. I get it. It's fine. You'll get your chances. Just right now, it's about the Nets. It's about eulogizing the Nets. We've got six more weeks of basketball playoffs to go. The basketball playoffs also will go on for the next six weeks without the interruption of the NFL draft. So we can just do exclusive basketball content with all the chances to talk about your beloved Boston Celtics. For now, we're going to talk to Adam about the Brooklyn Nets. And also, this is the most fascinating thing to come out of the first round, and the first round isn't even over yet. And in fairness, by the way, to take you behind the curtain a little bit, we always record our podcast the night before. As of recording, the Timber Pups are up six against the Memphis Grizzlies. So maybe the Timber Pups will get to 3-2 and we'll have a collapse of all collapses for Ja Morant, but that'll also give us a chance to establish the Ant-Man as the star of the sport. And that Pelicans and Suns game, I mean, my gosh, can you believe how that ended? I can't believe in a pivotal Game 5, where the winner of Game 5 wins the series 80% of the time. I can't believe how incredible that New Orleans and Phoenix Suns game was. I can't believe how Brandon Ingram did or didn't do that thing. It was incredible. I mean, gosh, what a great basketball game that I'm sure everyone will be excited to talk about. But we'll talk about those series down the line, probably after the NFL draft into next week. I wish I could talk about Timber Pups and Grizzlies. I just can't do it right now. My beloved Timber Pups have the lead, though, and it's giving me pause for hope. I want to believe. I want to believe in my beloved Timber Pups. In the meantime, let's talk to Adam Armbrecht about the Brooklyn Nets, and we're going to talk to Razor Rosenthal about the NFL draft here on this fine Take It Easy podcast on NFL Draft Eve. That's it. Yeah, no, no life complaints, just so I don't forget to record. Uh, no life complaints other than your disappointment of basketball. No, all good. Yeah, well, I wasn't prepared for it to be a sweep, but I guess it is a sweep now. So I, I was hoping that you would come on and we would talk about how fascinating this series has been and how <laughs> compelling the matchup would be in the second week as we head towards a game six or a game seven. But now nah, it's over at this point. So um me and, me and you both are in the same camp of it kind of banked on Kevin Durant. It didn't work out. Yeah, listen, that's the way uh, that's the way of it, man. You have a superstar talent like that. You know, you throw in Kyrie Irving, obviously, to whatever extent. And he didn't come up very big in the game, but you I, it's hard not to. It's hard not to have players like that and just say, yeah, they have to be worth a game or two in a series like this. And then when it gets swept like that, I think we talked about it a lot on our podcast where it was just. You start to go back and and reevaluate all of those those tentpole moments across the course of the season, and that's when you realize you know there, there's probably logic why things went off the rail. Yeah, that one's interesting, just because I I was doing the calculation myself. So I'm like, how could I have been so wrong? Because I thought the Nets were there, and the the conclusion that I came to pretty quickly is like Kevin Durant just had the worst playoff series of his entire basketball career. Maybe like there's a couple examples that we went back and found, but it's like, this is as bad as it's gotten for Kevin Durant before. And if I knew that was going to be the case, then of course, like that was the one thing that was keeping them afloat. 
Yeah, and I mean, you look at too, like he has a he has a good game. He has his first good game of the series, really, in in game number four. Obviously, Kyrie doesn't show up there. He had a big game in game number one. Some of the things you talk about, like you know, what should we have seen? Well, we always talk about you know, obviously, there's the the upheaval around the roster. You come into the year expecting to have three superstars, so all the supporting cast is predicated around those guys. So now, all of a sudden. Those pieces don't fit the same. And even though you make the trade with Harden and you get back a Seth Curry, that's your replacement for Joe Harris. You get back Drummond. Well, that's at least a body that can rebound some. But all the other pieces still in around this roster, even the young players, they're all predicated on playing with James Harden. And what you notice in game number four, and of course, we saw this over the course of the season, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving Neither one of them wants to play primarily primarily on ball. Neither one of them wants to be dictating offensive tempo. So all of a sudden you get my possession, your possession, my game, your game. And that's really hard, especially against a team like Boston when they're balanced like that. It's hard to then get into a series when you need consistency on a possession-to-possession basis. And the only consistency you have is I take the ball, I go for my shot. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, the spacing, the continuity, there, there's so many plays from this game. Dragic had a really good game, but also dribbled and handed it off to Kevin Durant, where he literally invited the double team and left Kevin Durant on an island being swarmed, right? Offensive sets where you see everyone stacked on the right side of the court, top of the key for Kevin Durant. No one's really sure who's supposed to be creating the spacing here. So again, you can go back and you start to look at it. None of it's excuses, because when you have two of the best players in the game, you got to be able to win games in a series like this. But I think you you understand how it was like chipping away at the block here, almost you know, piece by piece over 82 games through the play in. And then ultimately this first round series, I thought the running the offense thing was interesting. Cause I remember last year when the, the quote unquote big three formed for Brooklyn, which, you know, they, I, I wish that Kyrie had stayed healthy in that Bucks series last year. Not that the Bucks series was any kind of like disappointment. It just would have changed it a bit. I thought it was interesting that Kyrie kind of immediately went to like, I'm a de facto shooting guard now. Like I have all the dribble moves. I have the skill set of a point guard. It's better for me to work off ball and let James Harden be the the quote unquote point guard just because James Harden's game is so ball centric. And Kyrie's obviously great with the ball in his hands, but he can play better off ball than James Harden could. And they never kind of adapted back to that after Harden left, which it maybe that's what Ben Simmons was supposed to be for. Like, I don't know, maybe that maybe they would have had him as the point guard instead of what I was saying after the playoffs last year, where you make him a power forward, but they just never really figured that part out. Yeah. Well, I mentioned, you mentioned Dragic, right? He's the only other guy. He's the only, for, the only other floor general you have on this roster. When you go through them, I mean, listen, Seth Curry is your probably your third best ball handler, right? And he can score at all three levels, but he's not a point guard for you, right? He's playing at the three. He's a shooter and asking him to do something completely out of character would be a big order. Bruce Brown, we know he, he's played point guard. He played guard when he was back in his Detroit days. But again, he hasn't been doing that for this team, hasn't been setting that table in that way for them. So again, who, who takes control, right? Who takes control and says, all right, go, you guys get into your space and get into your spots and I'll make sure that you get good looks. When you don't have that, you end up with the ISO heavy ball. And yeah, I mean, you know, would you have liked Kyrie Irving to revert back to that kind of role? Sure. The problem is again, though, if you put him back into a floor general role, are you still going to have the same level of opportunities when it comes from offensively and other pieces? You could argue, obviously, after a four-game sweep, you go, well, something else, something different would have been better here. The question that I often come back to when we talk about 
your coaching, players, personnel, everything. You go, was that suggested? Was it asked of him? Because if you go to these post-game comments where Kyrie is saying, I'm looking forward with Kevin Durant and myself and Sean Marks to reforming this team going forward, that doesn't exactly speak to someone who is willing to, in the middle of a game, have someone tell them, take over, be the floor general, be the point guard. Let's go with that and see how it works. So then this is where you get into, there's plenty of things to criticize Nash for. And also there's plenty of things to criticize almost everyone inside of the organization for. Yeah. And that part's interesting because in the aftermath, you can play the what's what on it. And you can start with as simple as Kevin Durant didn't play well for most of the series and kind of like extrapolate everything else out from there. But you're right. Like Nash is going to be back. Ben Simmons is going to be back or I guess playing for the first time. So that's kind of their third star. Most of the team is going to be back next year. Like maybe Blake Griffin leaves, but like most of the team is going to be exactly the same. Well, you're going to see it was quickly. You mentioned Ben Simmons point forward is probably the way they looked at him when they made, when they acquired him the trade. He, he, he is you know obviously very good with the ball in his hands, not a good shooter. So you try to have him lean into some of the facilitation. But if you're talking about what's going to happen, big picture here, um, you know, the Marcus Aldrich isn't a part of this team going forward. Maybe Blake comes back. Maybe he just, you know, he could just retire. I, it's hard to say a uh, player option for Patty Mills. It's 6 million. It's a big number. He probably comes back for the money, but he also could look somewhere else and say, I have better chances uh, to win a title. If that's what he's concerned with at the end of his career, uh, Dragic, you know, I mean, listen, he looked good, but this is a guy that couldn't play more than 20, 25 minutes for you. Didn't play at all in Toronto. So that could be a uh, you know, fatigue factor there. Uh, Bruce Brown needs to get paid. What are you doing with Nicholas Claxton? You love him. Is he worth 15 plus million a year? Um, Andre Drummond's not going to be back. You know, there, it's the Nets are in the boat. If you take these messagings from Kyrie, obviously, um, they're in the boat of being a superstar high, you know, high team at the top and then rotating in the pieces. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get into a big in the offseason here about is that still the functional way to have success? And there was a really good comparison around the Miami Heat when they first formed with Dwayne Wade and Bosch and LeBron James. But when you have Pat Riley at the top of that organization, that's the guy making the decisions. And then you have an Eric Spolstra, right? So even then it worked because you had a strong enough voice dictating the tempo down. Whereas this was, you know, the, the deal, the deal you make, the deal you make to make yourself a superstar team and have a chance and you're kind of seeing the way it manifests in the decision-making process and what could be, I mean, there's no way this isn't an insanely interesting offseason for Brooklyn, let alone, by the way, obviously we know Kyrie's going to be back, but there's just a reality of 36 million player option. He's obviously declining that. He wants big money. You're, you're going to commit. The question about, oh, would you ever pay $50 million plus dollars to uh, James Harden on an ex-contract? Of course you wouldn't, but you're about to do it with Kyrie Irving. So it's already get long-winded, but there's, there's plenty of meat on the offseason bone. Yeah, this is the interesting part is when you turn the power in your organization over to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, this is an interesting place you find yourself in because you never say you don't want Kevin Durant. Like the, the alternatives are not there. So how do you work within that construct is really interesting because like they're they're going to change the periphery pieces. I assume the same five core guys are going to be back. Maybe they trade Joe Harris now that I think about it. Like maybe they, they that's the piece they try and shake things up with. But 
And money and money wise, it's interesting because he's on the books for 17 plus 18 million or so. But, you know, but again, you think about Seth Curry and Joe Harris. There's your shooters. They need to get longer. They need more length. They need more athleticism. Um, They need they need wings. They need they need defensive, you know, three and D wings. Get yourself not a Jeff Green, but we know what he meant to them the year prior. You need a couple of those guys. You put a couple of those players into this rotation. You get yourself a little bit more height. Then I think it changes a little bit, and then you're still going to have a question what you're doing at the five because right now, if you if we assume that Lamarcus Aldridge isn't back and and, and his functionality, he's just too slow. He's a liability. It's why he didn't get played in this series. I, I you know I love every single Nets fan. I am a Nets fan. There was no reason to play him. It was it, it was a, a zero sum game. So what are you doing there though? Because you don't have a shooter at the five now, right? So you don't have that uh, capability. So there's adjustments to get made, but and, and you know, and they're not gonna be able to do the draft. They don't have draft capital, you know, and they're not gonna be able to do it in free agency because they don't have any money. So you know, you're you're right back in the buyout market, and you look at free agency, and then who's gonna be out there? It's gonna be interesting to see. Shy of is Ben Simmons a part of a package? Is Joe a part of a package that helps rotate things over and you probably end up throwing in you know, your Cam Thomas's, your Dayron Sharps of the world to make those deals happen. Yeah, and that's weird because that what they really need is like nine Jermichael Greens deep sure. in the bench at this point. That's pretty much how <laughs> yeah. you build out the roster, but it's so difficult to figure out the periphery because once you get to the playoffs and everyone has, I mean, not everyone has a Kevin Durant, but like once you get to the final five teams, most teams have a Kevin Durant caliber player. Um, at least at this stage. So it's really interesting how you build out the rest of the roster in the periphery because like they're small moves, but at the same time, if the core of the team is the same, they're as good as that. Steve Nash is going to be the coach next year. It looks like unless there's a meeting of the minds fallout that happens in the next like two weeks, but it seems like Kevin Durant still wants his guy to be the coach. Like he hasn't lost love for Steve Nash yet. And Maybe there's a respect value there with Kevin Durant too, but I know when he was in Golden State, Steve Nash was his guy. He got him as the coach and all of that's interesting. We had talked about prior to game three, I think, Matt Brooks from Nets Daily, where you brought up briefly about Nash and he said, you know, it was like, is he going to be back? I don't know, but it wasn't about would he get fired? I mean, possibly. It was like, maybe he just walks away. Like maybe Steve Nash doesn't want to do this version of it, right? Like obviously you take the opportunity, but if you feel like you're being treated as a pseudo figurehead, you know, Steve Nash is a Hall of Fame. It's a, a quality understanding of NBA basketball. And at what point do you go, I don't have some type of real control over what we're doing. Then, ha- then what's the point of me being here? I can go to a young team, maybe somewhere and try to establish myself as a legitimate head coach because we're, you know, this is three. You know, the switchover from Kenny Atkinson, Steve Nash, his credibility is at an all time low relative to when he joined the Brooklyn Nets. So that, that's the other part of it. There's some whether it's at the top or it, players are going to look at the situation and say, is this the best situation for me behind these two guys? Which, by the way, and you said it, everybody makes this this decision like now we're this version of things. Every single person would have signed Kyrie Irving because it meant you were going to get Kevin Durant. Nets fans talk about what you lose and Jared Allen or Dinwiddie or Karis LeVert. Everybody would have gone and was hardened because, it, it, by the way, the, the very limited sample size, those three players were otherworldly. We had never seen <laughs> offense in the NBA history on that level. They were. But it all falls apart. Third year running where things just don't seem to be able to work for Brooklyn. Yeah. And that was actually kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is like, nobody really regrets the James Harden move. It just didn't work out. Right. Like they had to sell 
80 cents on the dollar for James Harden. And yeah, that sucks. You lose Jared Allen, you lose Chris Levert, you lose a bunch of draft picks, not all the draft picks, but you know, a good, good chunk of the draft picks. So, you know, it just stinks that that happened, but they don't like regret making the decision. No. About, and it's worth examining what the Brooklyn Nets got back for James Harden. Were there other opportunities to trade him? Maybe not. No, no, yeah, but it's just it's that thing, you know, about no one should regret the move, making the moves. And but now, like you are hearing about, and this is the emotional component of it of just the fans are like, how, how can you, you can't pay Kyrie now? You got to strip this thing down. It has to be just Kevin Durant and rebuild around him. And it's just not going to happen. You know, like these guys didn't get together. And you already heard it in all the post game conversations. It was, it was explanations or excuses, however you want to, however you want to take them about why it didn't work out, but why we're really excited to get this thing back and get it figured out. And again, James Harden having an issue with Kyrie Irving and his decision and all of a sudden deciding he didn't want to be there anymore. How can you prepare for that? And this is where some people look at Sean Marks. GMs have hits and misses, but what, what, are you, what are you asking of a GM that took a team that was literally in the cellar, built it up enough, took on bad contracts, turned it into assets, got to a place where it was attractive enough to say we can land Kyrie Irving and then Kevin Durant and have a chance to win championships and then have a third star go, nah. I'm good. I want to be competing inside of the same conference with you. Like, I don't know. You know, I, I, I think that, that things can all of a sudden three months from now feel and look very different for the organization and for Nets fans. But in this moment, and I actually, the, I'll say quickly, the, uh, on the last, I think it was on the last episode, I mentioned that as a Brooklyn Nets fan who's from New Jersey and grew up watching them in New Jersey, there was a part of me that was like, I think in the pit of my stomach, I get that feeling of the Billy King days when you swing for the fences and it doesn't work out. Nobody liked that back then, even when the moves were made and thought it was bad, but it was spend all this money, put yourself in a really bad set of circumstances. And if you don't win, then all of a sudden it's that same back building up process. And that's where Brooklyn, if they don't get this figured out over the next three years with Kevin Durant's current contract, they're going to be in a hole. You always sacrifice it for the title, but you need to win the title to make the sacrifice worth it. Well, this is what they trade off, right? Is like your best chance to do it is to have Kevin Durant for seven years. And sure, you turn over the power in the organization to Kevin Durant, but you know, that's sometimes the decision you have to make to get that once in a generation, like the greatest player the Brooklyn Nets or New Jersey Nets have ever had in their franchise history with no disrespect to anyone else there. Like that's the trade-off that gets made sometimes. And so I think if Kyrie and KD are still cool with each other, which it seems like they are, then they'll run it back together the next year. And as soon as Kevin Durant decides he's not cool with Kyrie anymore, he'll get Kyrie gone. Like as soon as that happens, Kevin has the power over him in that situation. And that's kind of the question too. You know, when James Harden wanted to trade there, at least is some element you understand of, he hasn't won a title yet. Like that's what he wants. He wants to win that championship. So that's what he wanted out. The question becomes like, will Kevin Durant, who we always call the apex predator, all he cares about is basketball and winning. Will he get to a point where if things aren't working, he would detach himself from Kyrie Irving? Maybe, but again, Kyrie Irving is a little bit younger than Kevin Durant. Like he is the guy that can help carry some of this load if he's around to do it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't see them separating now. Again, it's just about, you can tell me two moves they make in the off season that really reframe how you look at them going into next year. Um, but, but there's enough holes here that you could start next year looking at this team with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, the supporting cast and saying, we'll see, 
We'll see what this team looks like. Are they top half of the East? Certainly, right? The lowest they'd be is four or five. Okay, fine. But you're talking about a really well-run Boston team, as we saw in this series. You know Miami is there. You know the Bucks are there. You know the 76ers are there, right? Like, the Bulls are going to be a better team next year. Like, you're in this conversation where the East is going to be as competitive as it's been in probably 15, 20 years. So um, there's big enough questions there that they have to answer and figure out. So, uh, you know, at this point, (laughs) one day after they lose and get swept, the only team to get swept in the playoffs, I have a lot of thoughts and no concrete, like, and this is the way that they need to execute things. It's stuff that we're, of course, going to break down going forward. Yeah, of course. And that's it's interesting because the Brooklyn Nets are in this weird place where Kevin Durant decided to play there and the core of the team is built around them. And the thing that I always gave Marks, like Sean Marks credit for in that way was the pieces that they traded for James Harden were the, that was the rebuild. The rebuild mm-hmm. for four years was all to put them in a position to get Harden where it's like Chris Levert was a pick they got for, I think it was the, it was the James, no, it was the DeMary Carroll contract. And then they yeah. turned that into the pick that was him. And then Jared Allen was one of those picks. And then they traded all their future picks and Torian Prince and all that. Um, and Torian Prince, I think was to set up signing Kyrie in the first place. So like all of that remember- was the trade. Yeah, you got to remember, too, if you want to think about how do they rebuild this team in some ways, and to your point, a lot of those things were these these dominoes, these buildups that allowed for certain moves to happen. But then, you know, Joe Harris, Joe Harris is a scrap heap guy they picked up off of Cleveland. Like, that's actually probably where you need to look at Sean Marks if you're talking about how do you fill out this roster successfully is probably getting your mind back to the place where it was when you're trying to take on bad contracts and you're trying to find talent that the league is overlooking right now. That's Joe Harris. That's Spencer Dinwiddie. Like those are, I think some of the moves that you'd like to see them make. Now the caveat is you need, you need Kevin Durant to be good with that, right? You need this team to be good with you saying, I, there's a couple of players here that if we bring them in with you on the roster, their talent gets elevated. And that's what you saw. Listen, Joe Harris, obviously, right. But if you put Joe Harris on a team with no superstars, He's still going to hit a high percentage of threes, but how often is he going to be open to hit those threes, right? So th- there's that benefit that you get, obviously, being with two players of that caliber. So that's, yeah, I'd be interested to, th- to look at it from that standpoint and see what Sean Marks can do that feels kind of blending. You did the things that got you the superstars. You know how to get the veteran minimum contracts. Now find a couple of those overlooked prospects in the league that could maybe fill out this roster. I've always said that's the sign of the well-run organization, or at least I've evolved on that over the years. Because like, you can luck into great players and even the worst, like Minnesota right now, even the worst run organizations, if you get the number one pick enough, eventually you're going to find people who overcome the sadness of your organization. When it's like, we call Miami a well-run organization because they find James Johnson's and Duncan Robinson's and Max Struess's and Kendrick Nunn's and all that. Like Brooklyn was really good at finding those guys. And I think that's the trade-off they made is like they sacrificed they, they couldn't get the star. And part of that was because they lost the draft picks that became Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown in the, the Billy King tear everything down, go for the championship run. Like part of it was they just didn't have the picks. So they got good at finding those players within the margins and they kind of need that blend right now is player. I mean, they've got some of it with Bruce Brown and Nick Claxton too. Like even those guys were scrappy players who they turned into valuable pieces. Well, that's what the funny thing is, too. It's, you know, fans are criticizing because you should have re-upped Bruce Brown for so much more and you would already had him locked up. Now it's going to cost you more to keep him. But remember, first half of the year, everyone was saying how the guy was a total disaster and $4.7 million was too much for him and they had to scrap him. But 
but that's exactly right. You know, you make this trade, you end up dumping off Musa in Detroit. Now he's playing over in Europe and you end up getting back one of you. We, we had this conversation towards the back end of the year. Third most important player on the Brooklyn Nets this season, probably Bruce Brown. Nicholas Claxton, if you go back to his draft class and where he was taken, I can give you 20 guys ahead of him that he's performed better than, right? So finding those talents has obviously been capable. The funny thing is though, too, you think, about you can add you can add Kessler Edwards into that you can talk about Cam Thomas I think he would have been taken higher in the draft if you redid it Dayron Sharp is to, is a to be seen but a guy like Kessler Edwards for as good as he is we say well he gets rewarded with the postseason contract and he's a full time player with the Nets that's great but the difference between getting guys in the second round versus the top fifteen is he's a three and D guy but he's not that athletic three and D guy, right? He, he he's not a ball handler. He doesn't really do a lot of dribbling. So you're always going to, even when you find quality players, you're still giving up something in the margins on them. And that's the difference of, can you find a way to now maximize Kessler Edwards value with the way the rest of the roster gets constructed with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, right? How do you make it so that Kessler Edwards just needs to D guys up on the wing and knock down triples. Anything after that is a bonus. How do you get to a point where Bruce Brown doesn't need to be giving you double doubles and 25 points and playing against guys that are two feet taller than him, right? You need to have enough bigs that are viable shooters offensively so that Bruce Brown can be that pseudo backup guard slash three, you know, play up obviously on these assignments and lean in defensively. So these are the little tweaks you need to try to make and it but the, yeah, but those are the check marks, though. And this is why it's funny. You get to the back of these seasons, disappointment, you get bounced out. The Nets have only won one playoff series since this era began. That's obviously not the ideal, but there's so many things, man, when you evaluate Sean Marks and the organization, they've done well. And, and literally, at the start of this season, you would have regarded the Brooklyn Nets as one of the best run organizations in the league. So sitting here now and saying, Sean Marks doesn't know what he's doing. It's all a disaster. Everything's falling apart. It's just disingenuous if you're going to frame it that way. There's been mistakes. But really well organizations don't just crumble on, on themselves like that. Um, like when you speak about Miami or a Boston and teams of that nature. Yeah. And the other example I'll point to with that is Toronto, where Toronto for years got guys yes. who are like bench they're guys. Doing it right now. They have nine, they have nine forwards right now on their roster that they're drafting randomly throughout. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. But yeah. Yeah, you know, Van Fleet was undrafted, then he was in the G League, then he's the twelfth guy on the bench, then the tenth, then in the championship team, he's the seventh, then he's the fifth, then he's the third best player on a team that gets bounced in the second round. And now he's an all-star. Like that's the step up that they have. Maybe the guy doesn't get to stay for the entire time. Maybe like, you know, Detroit will pay him 25 million a year and doesn't work out like that, but that's kind of how the well-run organizations build people up. And Brooklyn's had that too. And, and that's the big difference as well. So you look at a team like Toronto, they built up, built up, built up. They make the move to get themselves Kawhi Leonard. They win the championship. But the difference is, is you can keep on reloading yourself. Any team that goes superstar, especially in free agency, when you pay the big money, that's where it becomes more difficult. You don't have the assets and you don't have the money. So Toronto called their shot, had success. When, 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 you know, even though when Kawhi Leonard leaves, you go, oh man, they could have maybe won more with them. Yes, but they immediately have all the money they're not spending on Kawhi Leonard and they still have capital and they still have assets. That's how you get to remain competitive consistently. The, the difference being obviously is Brooklyn can't just be competitive for one year when you have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, you can't yeah. it's not, it's not be competitive. You need to be competing for championships. And that's, it's what's fascinating about if you're a longtime Nets fan, the, the Spencer did with the, the D'Angelo Russell era, right? Like all of these, these, uh, 
different versions of this team are exciting for different reasons. Now the weight of expectation makes it anything but a deep playoff run is disgusting. Whereas five years ago, you were like, oh my God, they, they were an eighth seed. Can you believe it? Like they might be able to take a couple of games here. And there's that from a pure fan perspective. I think that that's like a different type of thrilling and exciting because you have low expectations. You're absolutely elated when they have success. And even, even when it doesn't go well, you're constantly like, yeah, but maybe in the draft we get somebody and we, and we come back next year. This is just so heavily championship driven that again, any, anything short of that, every little thing is going to be like, nope, not good enough. We're not getting there. Rightfully so but it's just a different version to cover and root for a team. Yeah. And if your organization isn't well run, this is where the um, people talk about like the peaks and the valleys where like you either yep. got to be competing for a championship or you're tanking. Like those are the two options because you got to get the superstar more than anything else. And the problem for Toronto right now, the reason they're not going to win a championship. And I think, you know, they should have the series with Philadelphia should have ended as soon as Embiid hit that buzzer beater at the end there. Yep. But you know, now, we're going to have a long series for some reason, but the, the thing that they're going to fall short to is competence as an organization will get you to the playoffs every year. It will keep you that good every year. So this is the trade-off of Toronto was really well run and they needed Kawhi Leonard to be championship. Good. Brooklyn was oh, sure. really well run. They got the sixth seed and to be championship. Good. They compromised to get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So it's kind of that weird balance that, I guess builds a championship team, but there's no real way to build a championship team without having one of the five best players in basketball. And you got to get, you got to get some luck involved as well, right? Like you need to be able to get the Jason Tatum and then also the Jalen Brown and then have a Marcus smart, right? You need to get Al Horford after it looked like he was totally cooked in Philadelphia to find out that he actually still has a lot left in the tank, right? And you need to, and then you need to steal Ime Doku from the Brooklyn Nets and have him really be a guy that is so invested in the effort, energy, defense, the X's and O's. Like you, you see, he, he, he changed that team over the course of the year. You need a Nick Nurse. Nick Nurse helps that team punch above their weight with consistency. Yeah, you know, I mean, listen, with the way this series went, you could tell me that the Nets had to play Toronto in a seven-game series to start the playoffs. They would have lost to them. Like, well-run, well-coached, balanced teams were, are going to give top-heavy rosters with a lot of moving pieces fits all the time. And by the way, it's why Toronto is giving Philadelphia trouble. That combined, obviously, Embiid with the injury um, has obviously hurt his hand a little bit, slowed him down slightly. But like that's what it is. That That's why these series are close and why Toronto pulls out a game and makes it, we're going to go to game six, right? Because we have talent. It's the, to your point. It's not championship talent. We can't quite get over that hump, but we can make it a pain in the ass to get out of the first two rounds if you have to take us on. And that's why teams don't want to see them. And the example I love bringing up because they've now won the championship is you get Chris Middleton in the second round. Okay, you draft a generational talent in Giannis and develop him and he decides to stay. They couldn't win a championship when it was Bledsoe and Brogdon. So then you use the draft picks that you have to get Drew Holiday. And all yep. of a sudden you have the piece that just gets you over the slightest of margins against a team like as great as Giannis is, you could say Kevin Durant's equally as good as Giannis or Joel Embiid is as good as Giannis or any of these situations, like just to get right over the hump, you just need that last little piece. You need, you need the Brooklyn Nets to spend the last season of Brooke Lopez's career as a net developing his perimeter shooting so he can round about through LA, make his way to Milwaukee and be that big for them. But you mentioned Chris Middleton, right? Like if you only have Chris Middleton and you don't get Giannis to develop him, Chris Middleton's a high level player. Okay. 
Like, you know, you're not, you're not winning championships with Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday and other pieces. He's a good player. He gets elevated to a great player because Giannis is on the floor, and that's what creates it. And then maybe that, rounding it back to the Nets, that's probably, you know, that might be the next piece of it. You know, is Cam Thomas capable of developing into that and being a scorer in that way of who gets elevated? Who is a, a high 2A player? becomes almost a third star because you have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. That's probably the way they need to look at how they can maximize offensive talent. Who's the guy that, yeah, you know, back into the first round, second round, but maybe he's athletic. He has the jump shot, whatever it may look like. And then because he plays on the court with these two players, he becomes that much more valuable. And maybe he ends up signing the big contract when he gets the chance somewhere else. And it doesn't look nearly as pretty when you don't have these stars. And Ben Simmons could equally, you know, he could be that guy theoretically. Um, but my God, could you not have a better, uh, you know, a, a worse set of circumstances to be coming through as far as personalities and just, you know, and all that stuff that goes along with it before you hit the offseason. So Ben's a hard one to to put a lot of stock in at this moment. Yeah, Brooklyn's easy to hate in that way because they're oh, they have yeah. the element. I mean, even when they had James Harden, they just had elements of people that get hated a lot. So yeah. that it makes it easier to hate Brooklyn in that way, which makes them relevant. Like that's the cool thing for Brooklyn is at the very least they're relevant. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they, they're in the mix anyway. People are talking about them. For better or worse, Brooklyn's going to get talked about for, for the next four or five years. So it's just a matter of hopefully making the talking points be something a little more exciting, like deep playoff runs and, and appearances in the finals. And Kevin Durant winning one more championship and everyone giving him the respect that he should have gotten in Golden State. But, you know, maybe just the one. Just the one. Just it's all it will take. That's all it that's all people need to immediately just give Kevin Durant all the respect and credit in the world. It's weird how that works. It's like if you just win one, we will give you they did it last year, even in a loss. They're like, we universally respect Kevin Durant because he put up 48 and 49 points in losses. Sure. And that's the big part of it too. It's you know, respect or perception or status. This is why, like we always talk about. You know, people bring up, well, you know, the, 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 he's obviously the best player, Kevin Durant or otherwise, Giannis, any of these guys. The, who's your top three? Well, who gives a shit? Uh, excuse me. You know, but who, who cares? Like, no, you, you can curse great. on this podcast. It's fine. All right. There we go. Yeah. We try to keep it clean on our, uh, <laughs> on our locked on. But it's, like, <laughs> it's like, who cares? They're one of the best. Like, I don't care. You can tell me, tell me Kyrie is the 10th best, the 12th best, the 15th, whatever. He's really effing good. Like, that's what I know. Kevin Durant. And, and by the way, you still keep Kevin Durant somewhere. It's like, he's one of the top five best. Okay, great. You tell me your hierarchy. I don't have any interest in the arguments around, well, Giannis is this or that. Well, great. I, I just know that I have one of the best players to ever play the game. And that means I should be capable of winning championships. And hopefully they will. Yeah. You have a generational talent, which is how I like to phrase it is like every generation is kind of like every five years. Cause that's the prime of a basketball player. So like you have your generation's greatest basketball player and that includes Steph Curry and that includes James Harden and that includes Russell Westbrook. And I guess Kawhi Leonard, Kawhi Leonard's kind of a tweener just because of his weird age, but you know, he's the best player of his generation. And even into his thirties post Achilles, I saw him play amazing last year. It's why this series is so weird. We've literally never ever seen Kevin Durant play this poorly in a playoff series. And that's weird. After 13 years of watching him, it's in the playoffs. At least it's weird that that's never happened. So, yeah. I, I, again, there, you know, we talk about blame. Everybody gets a piece of it. And that includes Kevin Durant. Cause I, I, I don't think that he necessarily adapted his style of play 
to whom we know he's capable of, didn't quite adapt it as quickly as he should in this series. Doesn't mean it would have made a difference. Doesn't mean there isn't four other things ahead of him in terms of the blame chart that you splice out. But every everybody took a piece of it. And it'll be interesting to see how this series impacts the way Kevin Durant approaches playoffs going forward. Yeah, and and we're all very dumb about the analysis because now he's hated again, but he will get universal respect as soon as he wins one time. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. That's sports. I know, I know. It's just, it's weird. I'm fascinated by Kevin Durant, even, even since he was on the Warriors days. I'm just fascinated by that psychology. So who knows? They'll figure, I mean, it's going to be the same core of the team. We know that. It's just going to be yep. interesting to see how they build the periphery going into next year. So uh, appreciate your time, Adam. I know we went a little longer than 30 minutes. Still super fun. Uh, much appreciated. Um, checked out, check out Locked On Nets. For anyone who's listening to this, there's there's links in the description to the episode and all kinds of stuff. Just go go support Adam. It's it's very nice that he's done two things with us in the playoffs. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Anytime. Always fun. Listen, I, I can talk it for days. So anytime hit me up. Uh, the, 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 you guys are doing a great job, too. So if you're if you're hearing it, you're enjoying it already. Keep enjoying it, man. It's good stuff. Everyone needs to be talking more interesting conversations around sports and you guys seem to be doing it. So a lot of fun. Hit me up anytime. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. Much appreciated. You got it. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How have the past few weeks been? Uh, good, man. You know, nothing, uh, nothing too crazy to report to you. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's sometimes the best way to go about it. That is the way. Yep. Well, how are you feeling about the NFL draft this year? I know this is, uh, this is, I guess, like the third year that I've been doing the podcast, and it's the first time that the NBA playoffs have overlapped with the draft. So draft yeah. coverage kind of goes head to head with that. So how are you feeling about the draft this year as someone who's not the biggest NBA guy? Yeah, fun. Very fun, actually. Uh, very hard to figure out when it comes to betting. Um, I think a lot of people are just in shock right now with Jacksonville's lean. I mean, the, the money line has drastically uh, turned from minus 300 for Aiden Hutchinson to now plus 160 for him to go one overall to Jacksonville. Uh, so if you were on the Hutchinson train early on thinking you may have gotten a great price tag at minus 300 or 250, uh, you're in trouble because it looks like uh, Trayvon Walker out of UGA, uh, defensive lineman. I mean, all indications, uh, and that's could be wrong. I mean, I who you know you never know, right? But ton of indications. If you look at the Vegas money line, uh, have him going to Jacksonville uh, in 48 hours, maybe 24 hours uh, after you know your podcast was recorded. But um, it sucks if you had a Hutchinson ticket. You felt pretty comfortable about you know 10 to 14 days ago. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly what changes there. The The interesting part about that is in the draft, I've said for years now that there's more people doing the draft analysis than there is draft to analyze. And so sometimes you get into the groupthink model there. I thought the groupthink was going to be for Thibodeau and Hutchinson. And obviously, it just takes one team to kind of break the mold a little bit for better or for worse. I'm just surprised that it went from Thibodeau's a lock to be number one. He's a generational edge rusher to Hutchinson's a little safer, but still an incredible talent to how about neither of them? How about we go to Trayvon Walker, which maybe Trayvon Walker's amazing. And we find that out down the road. I'm just surprised because all of the draft coverage for 
four months, five months was about those two players being amazing. And now they're kind of being nitpicked apart further down the line. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is remarkable. I mean, Thibodeau, his stock really dropped about a month ago and now it's kind of back up into that wheelhouse of an over under five and a half play. And it's really juiced uh, heavy to the under where uh, New York, uh, the Jets, I should say, because the Giants are picking right after them. But it appears that um, a lot of indication that Thibodeau will end up uh, at MetLife Stadium uh, with the green team. Um, so very hard to predict this stuff. It's fun. That's why it makes it fun to bet. I mean, you really you really can, you know, sprinkle in a couple bucks here and there, maybe some pizza money, some beer money to make it fun. But uh, I can't wait for it. I mean, honestly, there's not a ton of stars, right, uh, compared to some of the other years. But I think it's the most challenging uh, uh, betting market I've seen in a while, especially with guys like Malik Willis. I mean, you know, right now he's all over the place. I I, I think Malik Willis will be, and I sorry, I'm, I'm answering, I'm, I'm asking and answering a question at the same time. But uh, I I think I think Malik Willis. I'll let you ask any Willis questions you have, but it's probably the most fascinating character right now. Well, so let's talk about that idea because. I know that it seems like there's two quarterbacks now who everyone likes. It's Willis and it's Pickett. And that sucks for Matt Corral because Matt Corral was the guy who was at the top of the draft before that. And then he had the injury and now his stock is falling a little bit because it wasn't the greatest quarterback class in the world. Um, I've seen Willis all over the place on draft boards and he's not going to go to Detroit at two. I would assume anyone and it looks like at this point, Carolina kind of tipped their hand on they don't really want a quarterback. Maybe they flip on that and they do draft a quarterback in the end. But it seems like, well, you're taking away the people at the top who could reach for a quarterback. Then it's kind of a free for all because it's not that difficult to get from a middle of the first round pick to a top 10 pick this year or even a late first rounder to a top 10, top 15 pick this year. So pretty much anyone can have their hand at the quarterback if they so believe in them. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I think Malik Willis will go in, in the first 10 picks right now. You can purchase him at nine and a half um, and it's just a little heavier to the under. But I think he lands at eight or nine with two teams that just desperately need QB play. I mean, Marcus Mariota is, you know, not the solution for the next seven, eight years down in Atlanta. So I think Willis is a pretty good pick there uh, for Atlanta. And obviously we'll travel to the other part of the country, the other side of the planet in Seattle, where that's just a natural fit for um, a guy like Malik Willis to uh, take over the reins of, of Russell Wilson. So I like under nine and a half for, for Willis, and I don't really know what I like for Kenny Pickett. Um, Kenny Pickett, I, I I could see him going to Detroit with their 32nd pick overall. I mean, I, it's just really difficult to, to figure out where we're going to see Kenny Pickett in this draft. Where's the good landing spot for, for Kenny Pickett? You know, I mean, I don't I, – maybe New Orleans at, at what, 16 overall? That kind of mm-hmm. makes sense, but – um, this is tough, very tough to figure out where Pickett's going to go. I think the Carolina Panthers really like Kenny Pickett, but um, I think they pass. I think they go offensive linemen. I, I don't see how you pass on Charles Cross if he's available. I mean, you got to you got to figure out how to resurrect your offensive line in Charlotte. But you know, you, you got you got yourself a quarterback right now that's somewhat serviceable in Darnold, and I I think I think they pass on Pickett, and I think Pittsburgh. Doesn't seem like they're too excited about 
uh, Kenny Pickett, which I know the fans would be, but at the end of the day, I mean, this is a huge selection if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers. If anything, the Pittsburgh Steelers, I think they really want Willis, so they certainly would have to to trade up to get him. I, I and you have to correct me, um, Kyle. Is, is Pittsburgh at twenty? Do I have that right? Because I don't think they have a chance at Willis at twenty. Yeah, Pittsburgh is sitting at pick 20 right now. Okay, yeah, I think you could see that being a trade-up. And I also think what makes this this draft pretty fascinating will be the trades. Um, you know, will you see a superstar traded for a first-round pick on Thursday? Um, the likes of Debo Samuel, that would be interesting. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, but it could. And that would just really blow up the draft. So. You got to be careful when you bet when you bet these pre-flop draft picks on the over/unders of these guys. Um, a big trade like that just it changes the whole thing, right? Because if you didn't think that a team would trade, you know, trade away their picks to San Francisco, and San Francisco ends up taking, you know, Malik Willis, whatever. I me, mean, I'm just throwing out names. That changes everything. So um, you got to you got to proceed with a little bit of caution. I would not bet this big because of trades and because of stupid teams making stupid mistakes, too. Like, how much do you trust teams like Jacksonville and the Giants who have been so bad in, in the draft recently? Um, you know, I, I don't think the Giants can screw this one up. You know, it's like here, here's the deal. You, you, you need offensive line help. So Evan Neal. um, you know, or Aquano should be there, right? At, at five. If they're both gone, okay, well, you know, can we screw this up? Not really, because then you're going to have a guy like Sauce Gardner there. You need help, desperately need help, you know, in, in with your cornerback play. So and I don't think the Giants can screw up five. I wouldn't trust them like at 15 where they've seemed to screw up. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to bet heavy on. I don't see why anybody would. Yeah, I mean, the Giants one is interesting, similar to the Panthers, where it's like if Aquanu or Neil falls to five and six, then we assume they'll pick him up. But even if it's not the the most lovely pick in the world, especially considering the Giants, I feel like the Giants have been drafting and signing left tackles my entire life and never really have a great one. But Andrew Thomas is pretty good now, I guess. And sliding in an offensive lineman there, or sliding in a wide receiver here or a corner or whatever they end up doing is interesting there, but you're right. Like we don't trust the people at the top of the draft this year at all, (laughs) not even Houston or the jets or Carolina. Like this, this is one of those weird situations where all of the worst teams, not only are at the top of the draft, but some of them have multiple picks at the top of the draft. So yeah, if they make, you know, if they make a mistake as you, project they will and you take we just I just I'm gonna repeat myself you take a guy heavy on under seven and a half you think oh my gosh this is a steal he's going to go picks you know three through seven with ease well here come you know know, here comes something that's absolutely bizarre with uh, a a foolish team and then then your your big money is down the drain so uh, my advice is to do this for fun pizza money beer money uh, it just adds a lot more value to the draft uh, uh, from a from a betting perspective. How interesting is that part of it? Because obviously it's it's just teams picking players. And so it's not like one of those moments where like in a game, there's like weird nuances that are there. Like your entire bet hedges upon one person essentially or one organizational philosophy. And it just takes one person to mess with it. So I I think the mock draft thing is fun for content. I don't think it actually helps us get smarter when it comes to the prospects. I think the listing out of the players who are good 
is more important. So that way you know the names more than you know what teams or what fits would be best for them. Because ultimately it's just going to be teams doing what's best for the, or what they feel is best for the organization. And sometimes that can go totally against the grain that people fall into. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Yep. Also, who is the person that we make fun of now? Because I used to make Dave Gettleman jokes this time around the draft and he's not there anymore. used to make jokes about the bears used to make jokes about all of these guys and all Adam Gase and the jets and all of them are fired now. So I feel like we don't have anyone to kind of point to it. Even John Gruden was the terrible drafter for years and he's gone now. So who's the, who's the person we can make fun of and say, ah, they're terrible at drafting. Guess who's going to come in and mess up the draft. Cause I feel like we don't have anyone right now. Yeah, I mean, I think right now the the team that has just looked uh, foolish over the the last maybe two to three year sample size would be the uh, the Carolina Panthers right here in my home state of Charlotte. Uh, excuse me, North Carolina, and obviously they're in Charlotte. Um, you know, so you know Matt Rule, Dave Tepper, the owners, you know Scott. Scott uh, Fitterer, I believe, is the GM. And I don't think they're doing you know, anything egregious, but um, man, they've been bad. You know, they they have had they've had some bad teams the last couple of years here in Charlotte. So uh, look out for Carolina. I mean, can Carolina really do something foolish here uh, at, at six overall? Sure, they can. But, you know, if they're smart, if they're smart, um, which they are. These are smart people. These are people making a lot of money. I think they just build up their offensive line with Neil Aquano or Cross. And I think I think it would be really nice to see Aquano there because of his connection in the Tar Heel State being an NC State guy. Um, that would really provide a little bit more buzz than the other two guys that I just mentioned. But right now, I, I look at Carolina as, as the team to, to be very leery of when it comes to uh, making poor decisions. Yeah, and I have a little bit of resentment for Carolina because we did a, a an original podcast where we talked about rebuilding the Carolina Panthers. And I said, in 2020, they should have just torn it all to the ground and tried to get one of those top pick quarterbacks. And then they signed Teddy Bridgewater and won just enough games to not get a top pick quarterback. Now, they could have still drafted Justin Fields and they chose J.C. Horn instead. If they'd had the top pick in the draft, they would have been able to solve that. And it wouldn't be year three of Matt Rule where they're trying to find an offensive coordinator and they get Ben McAdoo and no no one wants to go play for them. Yeah, I agree. I I think right now they're the team, as you just mentioned, to uh, to look at and and use the word make fun of. Sure. I mean, they're yeah, I mean, they're just they're just a bad team. You know, and, yeah. uh, you know, ho- ho- hopefully if you're a Carolina fan, that that will change. One of my favorite statistics when it comes to the Carolina Panthers is that in the last three seasons in games post October 11th, the Panthers are four and twenty nine. Oh, wow. No kidding. So they they happen to win a lot of games at the start of the season and then just <laughs> fall apart at the my end gosh. of the season. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I could see that. I could see how that's happened. Yep. That's that's yeah. what that's what happens. Like they were, weren't they? Yeah, I think they started off pretty strong last year, right? It wasn't like the Cam Newton thing, like you know, I'm back against. Uh, I think they were in Arizona when they when they won that game, and then just mm-hmm. completely fell off the rails. 
they started three and zero last year with Sam Darnold. Yeah. He had like yeah. he had like those seven rushing touchdowns to that's start the right. season. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I wow. think I think they played like the Giants and the Texans during those three weeks, though. So it wasn't the uh, it wasn't the greatest sample size of Carolina. Oh, they played the Jets. That's right. They played the Jets week one. They played the Texans week three, and they just happened to start the season three and zero, and then. Yeah, I think I think the joke is that they finished five and eleven, but you can't finish five and eleven anymore. So I think they were five and twelve last year, which is just absolutely perfect. I think they're like five and eleven, five and eleven, five and twelve over the past three years. God's terrible. Yeah, well, we'll see what Matt Rule can do. It's not pretty. It hasn't been pretty down in the Queen City. Yep. Or in South Carolina, which is an amazing story that their their team facility was built halfway and then they just stopped construction on their South Carolina team headquarters because they're trying to figure out who's paying for what first between the local government and the team. And so they just have a half built team facility right now that's just stuck in stuck in half built right now. It's in purgatory there, and, and I think it's in Florence, South Carolina. What a what a disaster! Yeah, looking at the Panthers' schedule last year, three and zero to start off, but what a terrible schedule they were! Such a fugazi team. Come, uh, my goodness! Wow, they had uh, they had Houston. They did beat the Saints, but the Saints weren't that great. But they did beat the Saints. I'll give them that. Um, I'm looking at everything else, and they suffered their their. You know they they're horrible. I'm looking at all their their games. Yeah, they're bad yeah. teams. The, they are what I like to call minor league football. Yeah, what does minor league football do? Sometimes minor league football's got to pay eighty million dollars on an extension to DJ Moore. Sometimes it's got to pay seventy two million dollars to Christian Kirk. Sometimes that's what minor league football has to do. Yeah, well, maybe maybe the USFL can. Uh take over take the panthers and their uh, stable of teams yeah yeah I'm, it's sad that they ruined christian mccaffrey's career because part of the rebuild i had was like after 2019 they should have traded mccaffrey for like two first round picks and lo and behold he did get injured just like most running backs but yeah carolina panthers have ruined christian mccaffrey's borderline hall of fame nfl career i think buffalo should be a team to look at Christian McCaffrey. They, they could take that chance. They have enough mm-hmm. stars. Um, I don't know what we could trade for, for McCaffrey, but man, we just still need a running back. And I think Carolina is going to get a little loose here with McCaffrey. They've probably been pretty frustrated over the last two years with his injuries. So don't be shocked to see McCaffrey maybe on the uh, trading block for some picks here on Thursday night. I'm glad that you brought up Buffalo because I, I wish that more draft day trades happen, but these things kind of get built over like days and weeks. So we usually find out before the draft starts, but I'm glad you mentioned Buffalo because tor- uh, so my, my story with Devin Singletary is quite fascinating because I had him on my fantasy team in 2020. And so I was just like, Singletary's going to break out. He's going to break out. He's going to break out. And I waited like two years for him to break out because it's like, well, he's got Josh Allen in this offense. And they respect the passing game and a solid offensive line. This seems really conducive to success for the running back. And Towards the end of last year, he had great numbers, but it was just because they like ran it 28 times a game with him. And then when they got to the playoffs, it was like, okay, Josh Allen's the number one running back now. And they're calling all these run plays for Josh Allen. 
And that was kind of the moment I realized, okay, so Devin Singletary's not a starting running back in the NFL. And just, I, I thought Buffalo would be good, like going for like Dalvin cook and like just throwing the 25 pick around at a running back because they just need not the worst running game in the NFL non jets category in order to like be competitive. It doesn't have to be the best of the best running back. It just has to be a base level, decent running back, or at least the chance of having a top 10 running game. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's, that's been the problem over the last few years. I mean, Singletary is a serviceable guy, but if you can take some pressure off of Josh Allen and give the Buffalo Bills a not not so much a serviceable running back, but you know, a top twelve running back in the league. I don't know how you stop this offense. I feel pretty good about this team, especially with you know Kansas City. You know, I I don't know if I trust Kansas City as much as I have, as I have in years past. Obviously, with the departure of Hill, um, I don't think Juju really is going to make any impact in Kansas City. Perhaps I'm wrong. Um, the Bills don't have uh, an option really here to take a running back at, at 25 overall. I just think that uh, the running back uh, class that we have uh, approaching in the next two nights are, are just not there. These, these are second round picks, right? When you talk about Brees Hall um, and you talk about Walker, I, I don't think the Bills will stretch at 25 for either one of those guys. So um, m- maybe the Bills make a splash here somehow in, in the draft with the trade with someone who, has a running back maybe they give up their their first pick and their second round pick and throw in some money but uh, i i agree with you i think singletary is a really solid running back but he's not going to alleviate enough pressure for josh allen so what are some of the other deeper in the draft picks that you think are interesting um that can be from a gambling standpoint or just from a football fan standpoint yeah, I, I like uh, I like under running backs uh, first half, which is uh, a half of running backs. So obviously you're betting that there will be zero running backs taken in the first round. The juice is about uh, minus 180 to 200, uh, depending on the shop. I, I think that's uh, I think that's a sure thing. Honestly, I think if you're going to bet big on one dynamic, um, you're not worried about a lot of teams trading up to get Walker or Hall, right? They can wait on those two running backs. So I'll play the under there. I think if you're sitting on a ticket of over five and a half wide receivers, you're probably cashing that with ease. The market now has it at six and a half. That's going to be tight, Kyle, at six and a half. It's going to be close. It's going to be six or seven wide receivers. Uh, first, you know, first overall, you have Wilson, London. Those are two. Um, Jamison Williams will make three. Alave will make four, uh, five should, and Dotson will be there. Burks from Arkansas six. So there's, that's when it gets murky. You're really, you're really asking for trouble if you go heavy on the, on either over or under at six and a half. So uh, that's a no play for me. I do like under two and a half quarterbacks first round. Um, Kenny Pickett, the wild card there um, as the second overall quarterback. I'll give, I mean, that's fine. Let him go in the first round. So then you're relying on Desmond Ritter uh, to potentially be the Detroit Lions quarterback at 32 overall. Um, I, I do think Detroit will take a, a Ritter or Pickett at 32. I, I just think they, they need to go QB. They, they need a guy to be, to be under, you know, their current situation with golf for at least one to two years. I don't think it's Corral. Corral will not get to the first round, but I'm going to go under two and a half QBs. Um, I, I just want to take that chance. The only thing that scares me would be, um, you know, 
if Pickett goes in the top 20, which, you know, I, I don't really see a great landing spot for him except New Orleans at 19. Um, I, I'll go ahead and, and feel pretty good about, about two and a half. I think Dotson, the wide receiver from Penn State, is, is, is to me is the most one of the most exciting receivers in the draft. I think he goes late first round, and a team that would scare me to take to get him would be Kansas City to kind of replace Tyreek Hill. So if Kansas City gets Dotson, um, that would be disappointing as a Bills fan. At twenty five, I, I still think the Bills can build their wide receiving core. You know, I, I think I think I think I think uh, Dotson would be my guy at 25. I wouldn't mind uh, Traylon Burks from Arkansas. He's a stud. I don't think we're going to get a lave. I don't think he's going to drop. Williams probably won't drop as well. So I think Buffalo, I think the I think the Buffalo Bills could could really go wide receiver here at, at 25 overall. I think their offensive line is fine. There's no running back there. The Bills could also go corner. So it's, it's really a fun draft. I mean, I'm, you know, I think at this point now, also another play that would be small. I just, it seems like all roads lead to Jacksonville for, for uh, Trayvon Walker and the price tag right now, um, you know, sits around 150 to 200, just depends on where you're at. I know DK I saw this morning was at 190. So I think um, Aiden Hutchinson stays home in Detroit. So kind of like uh, Walker, at one and you can bet that and you can also bet um Hutchinson at two listen Hutchinson is not going past Detroit so if you feel like the market is completely changed and everybody agrees that Walker is Jacksonville's guy then that that would be my betting recommendation but don't bet it too big you know these are again you're relying on general managers you're relying on potentially trades that could transpire that can screw up all of your betting plans so these are one unit plays for me, Kyle. I, I'm going to play probably eight or nine prop bets tomorrow uh, to get ready for Thursday and make it fun. And th- that's, that's my goal. And if I go four and four on one unit bets, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's going to be fun. Yeah. And Hutch- I forgot about the Hutchinson to Detroit thing. That was uh, an extra part of that. Gambling on the draft feels like a futile effort because even like the best of the best only get like eight or nine picks correct in the draft. I think we're getting smarter about it than ever before because teams are becoming increasingly predictable, but even the best of the best only get eight of nine correct because as soon as one of them gets messed up, everyone's draft gets messed up. So it's easier to hit on picks at the very beginning of the draft. Yep. Agree. I I think the murky waters take place picks you know, seven through 14, if you're really trying to key on guys that are at, you know, under 10 and a half, over 10 and a half, again, just, just be careful. The wide receiver one you mentioned is really interesting because I didn't realize the line was at six and a half. And of course we're seeing the wide receiver market just change overnight with all of, well, first of all with Christian Kirk, but really first of all with DeAndre Hopkins back when he got traded from the Texans to the Cardinals and the Cardinals gave him a $27 million contract. We kind of see now the wide receiver market change. And so I'm interested if teams overvalue wide receivers in the draft, even because everyone's trying to find a star wide receiver and trying to find it, you know, on a rookie contract for four to five years. So I don't think, you know, from what draft people are telling me, which I don't do my own research with the draft, I kind of trust our other people's expertise. Uh, It seems like there aren't seven first round caliber wide receivers, or at least on paper, there aren't seven first round caliber wide receivers, but maybe 
teams start reaching for wide receivers, especially towards the back end of the first round. Yeah, I think the over is, uh, excuse me, the under at six and a half is juiced pretty heavily. I don't have those odds in front of me, but my inclination would be to bet under six and a half total wide receivers first round. If you can find a five and a half where you're paying heavy juice on the over, that may still be the play. I mean, I, I think what you do, Kyle, here, here's a good betting recommendation advice. If I can find it, I'll do it myself. Is I, I'll bet over five and a half, and then I'll also bet under six and a half. And what that gives you, just like we talk about the money line and ATS that I, I used to do, I mean, you're going to go one and one, right? Guaranteed. Of course, there's going to be a loss of juice there, you know, because one of them is going to be juiced heavy to the over five and a half and heavy to the under six and a half. But that's a pretty realistic middle bet, right? I mean, if it lands on six, well, you just cashed both tickets. And based on all of this research, I just don't see a seventh wide receiver in round one. So if you can find over five and a half at like minus 200 or more, or excuse me, not more. I don't want to, I don't want to throw in a crazy number, but let's say minus 200 to minus 250. I think you play the over. And if you find an under six and a half at minus 200 or less, I think you play the under and you bet them both. And you, you got a chance to hit both those bets in the worst case scenario. You're going to go one and one, but you are going to lose juice because the juice is going to be heavy on either one of those wagers. I do see an over five and a half sitting at plus 200, but that's the best I can find in terms of odds right now. So if you want to bet the over there, you could get good value on there being six. I can't find anything for an under six and a half, though. I imagine you're right. It's probably around like minus 200 or minus 250. I would guess just based on what the odds are for that, by the way. So the person who this is for, this is on sportsillustrated.com. Some of their betting people, they say, if you're looking for a first wide receiver drafted value on Jamison Williams, possibly being the first wide receiver off the board. It's possible, you know, and, and they're plus, and I'm sure he's providing plus money, but I, I think it's going to be uh, Garrett Wilson out of Ohio state or Drake. That's Long. what those, I've seen. The, the convene, the, that's what I've seen most people saying to, up to this point is that yeah. it's going to be him. Although I will throw out some love for Chris Alave from my hometown of San Diego in the six one nine shout out to Chris Alave. Chris Alave is a great receiver. I mean, he 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 was a beast at, at Ohio State, and you know, obviously, you have two Ohio State wide receivers that are heading uh, to uh, heading out of the, out the door of the first round. I think Alave will be in the twenties. You know, a good landing spot for him is Green Bay, right? Um, there's a wide receiver that just exited Green Bay. I don't remember his name. Maybe it was uh, Devontae Adams. That's a big name. Uh, Marquez Valdez Scantling. That's and who yeah, you're MBS about. is gone too. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I forgot about that. MBS is in Kansas city. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Yeah, for so close to 10 million a year. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, uh, if you want to make, uh, angry Aaron happy, get, get him a weapon. And that could be a Jamison Williams or a Chris Olave. I think I will say Chris Olave would look pretty good in black and purple. That's, that's what I'm going to say. Playing okay. alongside old Lamar Jackson. Okay. All right. That's, uh, not impossible. That's a team. That's a team that could use some weapon help for sure. I mean, they don't have a ton of weapons. They have obviously, I think, one of the better tight ends in the league. And then after that, it's 
kind of choppy with the Baltimore Ravens on. Yeah, they did. They, it, it probably won't happen because they drafted wide receiver in the first round last year with yeah. Rashad Bateman. It'd just be really cool to see it happen because. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't fallen in love with Rashad Bateman, obviously, this year. Uh, last year, I should say, wasn't wasn't too great. I, I think I think they have some defensive problems to address. So may, maybe an edge rusher, maybe a de- defensive line guy makes sense for for Baltimore, you, you do have a really good group of guys in there that should be, you know, 12 through 16. And obviously Baltimore's in that 14 hole. So I could see a Jordan Davis going there, Jermaine Johnson out of FSU. Those two kind of make sense to me in Baltimore. Yeah. It looks like Bateman only played in like five or six games last yeah. year due to injury, but you are yeah. correct. I, Baltimore needs that help with the, the corner and uh, the edge rusher, and I guess to a certain extent, a linebacker. But it was kind of shocking. I was going through the first mock draft. I was like, oh, Baltimore has the 14 pick. I forgot about that. It's, it's weird. Baltimore's like one trade away from getting like Kevon Thibodeau. I was like, dang, that's kind of weird. Because I forgot Baltimore, you know, after Lamar got hurt, they lost all their games to end the season. I think Thibodeau would be amazing in Baltimore. I mean, that's kind of like your your next Ray Lewis, you know, 2.0, right? Um, the guy that shows a lot of moxie, um, but they'll have to they'll have to spend a lot. But you know what? The, the Jets would be a good team to do it with. The Jets have they have they have capital. They have the tenth overall pick. Um, man, that would be fun to see Baltimore get Thibodeau at four. That that would make that would make sense to me. Yeah, it would be cool if Baltimore wanted to give up the extra first round pick, which Baltimore never does that. It also Baltimore never has a pick this high in the draft, though. Yeah. And the one time they did, they drafted a borderline Hall of Fame left tackle in Ronnie Stanley. So we'll see what they end up doing this year. Yeah, no, I no doubt. I mean, they 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 are always in the playoffs. First year they've missed a playoffs and God knows how long. So you're right. This is a, an interesting slot for them at 14. This is this is a good solid front office and I I, I foresee them uh, not not stretching and and not making a foolish mistake. So I you're right. They probably hold serve at 14 and and grab themselves a, a defensive lineman if I had to guess. Yeah, probably the case. Baltimore, you know, very quietly has become the silver standard behind the Patriots over the past 15 years. Um, I think the Patriots kind of sucked all the air out of the room for the longest time in the NFL. And Baltimore kind of quietly was doing some of the same Patriot type stuff just without having Tom Brady for a lot of years. Yeah, they have a version of that, which is unanimous MVP Lamar Jackson, which is at the very least an elite quarterback for the first time in. I guess arguably the franchise's history, considering that they're going from, I guess you could even count the Cleveland history. I guess Bernie Kosar was pretty good, but the first time in the history of the franchise that they have an elite quarterback. No, I agree. It wasn't Joe Flacco, I could tell you that, but uh, he gave him a Super Bowl. This is true. This is true. He did. He played his best football when he needed to, him and Nick Foles. Best football when you needed it. So, Razor, I appreciate it. Thanks for your NFL draft expertise. I hope you enjoy betting your pizza money on uh, some fun NFL draft picks on Thursday. Hope you have an amazing, amazing time this week. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, let's uh, let's let's do it again down the road. Maybe some baseball chat as we get, you know, into the the first quarter of the season. But it is a it is a time of the year that that you know sports is in some people's eyes a little bit down. Obviously, the NBA playoffs that are are in the thick of it, and 
you know, we uh, we still go strong at Beer Life, have some great guests on throughout the uh, throughout the spring, still talking really, Kyle, about the NFL. I mean, it's just it's it's a it's a 365 day uh, a year business. So uh, the NFL chat is not stopping uh, with, with Beer Life. And of course, uh, you know, with with, uh, with us, you can follow it on, on Beer Life. It's going to be I know it's going to be down in the links. I always appreciate that Beer Life Sports on Twitter and Rosenthal Razor on Twitter. We'll get you going. We'll have some fun. Yeah, check out Razor talking to Tommy Bowden also last week. I thought yeah. that was pretty cool. The the former coach of Clemson who was fired and then Clemson turned into a lightning in a bottle dynasty with Dabo Swinney. So check <laughs> yeah. out Tommy Bowden on the Razor's Red Zone pod. Yeah, Tommy was a really nice guest. And, you know, obviously, you know, Clemson was good under Tommy Bowden, but it just happened to change, you know, a lot when, when he was released and, uh, Obviously, I would give him a lot of credit for the success because, um, you know, Dabo walked into a pretty good situation. And I think a lot of that um, was because of uh, the, the recruiting of, of Tommy and his staff. But, yeah, that was a fun treat to, to be on the show about a week ago with Coach Bowden. Had a great time reliving those ACC moments. Yeah. And for someone who lives down in ACC country, that's got to be a pretty cool one because – Clemson became the dynasty of that. I'm so fascinated by Clemson just as a program because it, that shouldn't have happened. What Clemson did for the last six years just shouldn't have happened. It's yeah. so strange that that's a, that it, that was able to exist in college football. But yeah, I thought, I think that's cool. And you should check out his interview with Tommy Bowden because it was pretty cool. So again, Razor, much appreciated. Uh, enjoy draft week. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it. Always, always a pleasure to be with you.